0: Thank you for being here again for the next update and episode of our Friday weekly podcast, the Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jerry Mantman, a partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today are my colleagues and fellow partner Mike Marino and associate Randy Kim. Thanks so much for both of you being here on the podcast.
1: Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks for having me, Jerry.
0: Absolutely. Today, we wanted to discuss trends and important uh, rulings in the area of antitrust class action litigation. To your way of thinking, what were some of the most significant developments in the class action world in 2022 in the antitrust space?
1: I think what the most important uh, development that we that we saw was really an expansion into uh, the labor market from traditional areas of uh, antitrust focus. So historically. Uh, antitrust enforcement has focused on uh, areas uh, in price fixing and other other anti-competitive uh, conduct in sales and product markets. And more recently now, there's been a growing recognition uh, in the intersection between antitrust violations and the labor markets. And this in turn has led uh, antitrust authorities to increase scrutiny uh, over labor markets and for the plaintiff's bar to really piggyback on that momentum and uh, push the limits of class actions Class actions to recover employment-related antitrust violations.
0: Mike, what do you think that uh, the plaintiff's bar has targeted this particular area? What do you attribute this growth to? Uh,
1: I, I think it's really attributed to uh, them pushing the envelope in terms of trying to be creative and find um, uh, new gold in the mines, uh, price fixing and Uh, Other anti-competitive areas and traditional uh, markets, uh, sales markets and products markets is tried and true. Um, But here what we have is um, there are a number of companies that for years have have, uh, no poach agreements in their uh, uh, employment contracts or um, uh, anti-solicitation provisions in their contracts. And so really the plans bar is tapping into um, in, into this area to uh, essentially get, get gold out of the mine uh, and, and find new ways to um, expand uh, uh, potential litigation.
0: Randy, I know you're a thought leader in this space. Do you think that the Biden administration's position on antitrust issues is also driving uh, this private plaintiff class action litigation in the antitrust space?
2: Oh, absolutely. Um, I agree with uh, everything Michael said that the expansion has really been uh, a consequence of what we saw with President Biden's executive order in 2022. I think that was July. Um, It was an expansive statement of their goals for competition policy for the administration. But within it was a clear declaration that uh, the Biden administration would pursue actions in labor markets. And consequently, the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission have been diligent in bringing these prosecutions, although it took a little while to get going. And then, as we see in other areas of antitrust litigation, the plaintiff's bar uh, follows up on those actions as they do on other antitrust uh, actions, especially with these lawsuits where, they, where the plaintiff's bar is able to identify no poach agreements that might be, uh, might be conducive to this kind of argument.
0: Mike, were there any rulings uh, in 2022 that would uh, nicely dovetail with this interest between the Biden administration and the private plaintiff's class action bar?
1: Oh, uh, absolutely. What we saw in 2022 um, really a target, uh, the plaintiff's bar targeting uh, franchisors. And so there is a case in the Northern District of Illinois Landis versus McDonald's, uh, where the district court uh, denied class certification of a nationwide class of McDonald's workers, uh, primarily on the basis that plaintiffs uh, failed to satisfy uh, Rule 23b-3's predominance requirement. Uh, And so the court denied class certification on that basis. And really what uh, led to that conclusion was the court's determination that it was going to apply uh, what we call the rule of reason uh, analysis, um, which is in, in, in essence an evidentiary burden for plaintiffs uh, that requires them um, to uh, establish an anti-competitive effect or impact in uh, in a relevant uh, market. In this case, a uh, the relevant market is the labor market. Uh, and so the court concluded that because this was a nationwide class action uh, spanning coast to coast and uh, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of local labor markets, uh, plaintiffs wouldn't be able to satisfy, at least not with uh, class-wide evidence, that uh, there was uh, an anti-competitive impact on on, on the labor force. Uh, and so because of that, uh, individualized issues overwhelmed common issues, and, and led the court to deny class certification. And really what we've seen is that become um, a battleground in 2020. That that question of whether per se treatment or rule of reason treatment is going to apply to a claim uh, because it has drastically uh, uh, important consequences for the evidentiary burden, even at the pleading stage for, for plaintiffs.
0: Now, Randy, I know the Department of Justice sought to intervene in the McDonald's case, both at the district court level and on appeal at the Seventh Circuit. What should our readers take away from the activities of the Department of Justice in terms of its Interest and litigation of these issues in the McDonald's case.
2: Yeah, so that's that's an excellent question because, uh, as you allude to, prior to Deslandis, the DOJ uh, had put out a policy position. Uh, forgive me, I forget uh, a format in which they used, where they essentially said uh, a a a sort of hands-off approach to a lot of these covenants and employment agreements. And saying that in in most situations that these should be uh, these should be analyzed under a rule of reason, which is a, a more understanding uh, standard for uh, when you can do something that might have competitive consequences. With the Dislandis case, uh, the Department of Justice's position switched, uh, and this is with in line with the Biden administration's uh, renewed focus on a more um, uh, a more uh, vigorous uh, enforcement approach, um, and so what happened is even though the DOJ weighed in and the Disalendas case, saying you know these should really be analyzed under a per se approach, the the markets are the same, the analysis is the same, we have all of these antitrust tools that should apply just as easily to labor markets, courts were not fully convinced and i think the dislandis opinion shows that despite the doj's new position that this is this is same old antitrust analysis courts are not incredibly comfortable with the notion that all of these agreements should be uh analyzed under a per se standard um and as michael said it's really becoming the the battleground or the determinative factor uh, in whether a no-poach class action can get certified at all.
0: I'd be interested in both of your takeaways, the notion that class certification is the holy grail, and that in class actions, they're so big, they're so weighty, they're worth so much money, and in the antitrust context, you have troubled damages. Is the whole game or the battleground at class certification, or are there other aspects of antitrust class actions that you think are important and what might those be?
1: That's a good question. Absolutely. Uh, the order granting or denying a uh, motion uh, certified class is going to be the most critical um, point in the lifespan of a, of a class action. A, a decision granting class action has the potential to blow up the case, and a decision denying class action has the potential to devalue the case all the way almost to zero, um, rendering it just a nuisance value case. Uh, plaintiffs often in um, antitrust uh, class action seek class certification under Rule 23B3, uh, which requires that they satisfy the uh, predominance test uh, demonstrating that common questions of law and fact uh, predominate uh, over uh, individual questions. And then, in turn, is um, uh, an extremely fact intensive inquiry uh, into both the availability and adequacy, adequacy of uh, common evidence. And so um, on the one hand, you, you have the, the class certification uh, decision itself being, you know, a, a critical juncture in the case. Um, and I would just add the, the other important areas um, are the discovery that goes into uh, that determination uh, just because it is so uh, fact intensive.
2: Yeah, and I'll echo what Michael said about how uh, significant the classwide certification is, and potentially uh, turning a turning a cause of action into um, um, almost a nuisance suit. Uh, we might talk about later if if your class is um, if the cause of action is alleging some wrongful anti-competitive conduct based on an app that you bought on your cell phone for a dollar and fifty cents. Then the, the, the cause the uh, litigation over that kind of amount isn't uh, as as uh, productive as a giant class that might get certified. Um, I think a good example of a ruling that's hinging on this predominance inquiry was from the Ninth Circuit, and that case was Oline Wholesale Grocery Co-op Incorporated uh, v. Bumblebee Foods LLC. So. Olean involved uh, direct and indirect purchasers of packaged tuna seeking recovery for um, an illegal price-fixing conspiracy against three large tuna suppliers. Um, and after the suppliers pleaded, pleaded guilty or admitted to charges in exchange for leniency from the DOJ in 2015, um, the district court held an evidentiary hearing to hear the, uh, the battle of the experts between the two parties And it held that the plaintiff's statistical analysis was sufficient under the 23B3 predominance requirement to show common questions. And it certified three classes of plaintiffs. Um, As a a little side note, the the en banc Ninth Circuit affirmed the district court's class certification after an initial challenge had produced um, this, this argument from a number of judges on the Ninth Circuit, that uh, there were too many uninjured class members or there were questions about the uninjured class members. And the en banc ninth circuit affirmed uh, they rejected any de minimis rule about the number of potentially uninjured members. Uh, And they held that such a rule would be consistent with the text rule 23.
0: Now, one of the benefits uh, that our clients talk about in utilizing the Dwayne Morris class action review as a research tool is the data within it regarding class certification um, conversion rates. How did defendants and how did plaintiffs do in 2022 when it came to winning and losing class certification motions in the antitrust space?
1: Defendants edged out plaintiffs in terms of of winning uh, class certification. So in 2022, uh, we saw plaintiffs win 37% Thirty-seven percent of uh, of their class action motions, and by contrast, uh, defendants were able to secure a denial of class certification sixty-three uh, percent of the time. And um, the common denominator uh, among these decisions um, really is 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 how they how the fight centers around again, um, and how there's complex uh, inquiries centering around whether common issues. Uh, and common questions or individualized issues predominate in a particular case. And so uh, two cases kind of come to mind that that drive home that point um, where classes were denied, uh, class certification uh, were denied because of a lack of predominance. And one is um, a a case called uh, Niple et al versus JP Morgan, uh, where the court uh, credited the lack of a reliable methodology for calculating damages through common proof uh, as a, one of the additional factors in denying class certification. Uh, and then the other case is um, a case called Value Drug Co. et al. versus Takeda Pharmaceutical, uh, where the court determined that Plaintiffs failed to produce sufficient evidence to show uh, that common issues predominated. So again, that predominance inquiry um, rearing its head up again um, in pretty much all of the uh, uh, decision uh, class certification motion decisions.
0: Randy, where plaintiffs were successful in certifying their antitrust class actions, what were the sorts of theories or what was the glue that held their cases together that led courts to certify the plaintiff's claims?
2: As we mentioned before, the the stakes are enormous. Um, In 2022, the district court for the Northern District of California uh, granted certification to a class of over 21 million consumers uh, in in NRA Google Play Store antitrust litigation. Uh, I I believe that's one of the largest classes that has ever been uh, certified in an antitrust class action. Uh, Ultimately, the court found that the plaintiff's expert witness testimony and models, while not dispositive, were sufficient at the class certification stage to have its probative value determined later by the fact finder.
0: There have also been a lot of settlement activity, and there have been uh, attorney's fees awarded just this last week, the Tenth Circuit, in an antitrust class action, awarded five hundred and three million dollars to class counsel for successfully prosecuting and then settling an antitrust case. In both of your minds, what were the key uh, settlements um, in twenty twenty two, and what do you foresee happening on the settlement front in twenty twenty three?
1: The settlements are are huge. The numbers are just uh, astronomical, and that really is really what drives the plaintiffs bar too. To push theories to re, to recover in these cases, uh, in 2022, uh, the top 10 antitrust class action settlements told, totaled over 3.7 uh, billion, and the largest settlement was 2.67 billion in a case called Inray Blue Cross Blue Shield Antitrust Litigation, uh, and that case, uh, that settlement resolved claims that. Health insurance companies violated the Sherman Antitrust Act by entering into in an unlawful agreement to restrain competition between markets selling health insurance. And so uh, really, these, these astronomical settlements is what drives the cases. And so I, in 2023, there will definitely be more suits to come. Plaintiffs will continue to push, um, push the uh, theories uh, in order to, to obtain these, these type of uh, uh, settlements. Uh, and then your question specifically, Jerry, about the the recent Tenth Circuit affirming $503 five hundred and three million um, dollar attorneys' fees award um, that was uh, that was a, a almost a case onto its own um, it, because that devolved into uh, litigation over the uh, attorney fees petition and that was a um, a case out of the Tenth Circuit called In re Uh antitrust. And Sagenta is a manufacturer of uh, corn seeds. And what happened in that case is that there were several groups of farmers that sued Sagenta because it had released uh, GMO corn seeds into the Chinese markets without obtaining the necessary uh, Chinese regulatory uh, approval. And when China discovered this, uh, it essentially closed all of its uh, doors to uh, U.S. corn suppliers, uh, resulting in alleged domestic uh, damages in excess of a, of a of billion dollars. And so this case settled 100 uh, after hundreds of lawsuits were filed uh, and were combined in multi-district litigation. Uh, it settled in 2018 for $1.5 with $503 million allocated for attorney fees. And as you can imagine, when you have that much money at stake and that many uh, plaintiffs' firms uh, jockeying for a seat at the table. Uh, the uh, fee award was challenged, and on appeal, uh, after a 179-page uh, opinion, that says, uh, the 10th Circuit affirmed the district court's uh, fee award. Um, but that just demonstrates, uh, you know, the damages, the exposure, the the fee awards. That- that are at stake in these type of cases and why they're, um, you know, there's no stopping these cases in 2023.
0: That's an incredible start to 2023. Randy, how about on the government front with the DOJ and the Federal Trade Commission, what are the takeaways that corporate counsel should be looking for in 2023 on that front?
2: Yeah, um, well, the plaintiff's bar will continue to try to win class certification uh, to push settlement numbers by using advanced methodologies Um, The DOJ and the FTC are going to publish new merger guidelines, Um, and although that won't change laws, plaintiff's counsel could use them as authority in the courts. Uh, The FTC also in January proposed a rule to ban employer worker non-compete clauses and rescind any clauses in place. So we see this kind of approach to labor markets uh, expanding uh, as the DOJ and FTC really gather steam. Uh, if finalized, this role would lead to a major change for many employers, and we're sure to see a lot of uh, uh, debate and argument concerning those arrangements.
0: Well, Michael and Randy, thank you so much for your analysis and your contributions. Loyal blog readers, we hope you enjoyed our second podcast uh, today, and please tune in next week for our third. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank you.